someone else has already said it best. This is the best, the best of it. The best ones aren't as good as you probably think they are. What is best in life? I did the best I could. Doing my best. 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 Come to Los Angeles. The sun shines bright, the beaches are wide and inviting, and the orange grove stretches far as the eye can see. There are jobs aplenty, and land is cheap. Every working man can have his own house, and inside every house, a happy all-American family. You can have all this, and who knows, you could even be discovered. Become a movie star, or at least see one. Life is good in Los Angeles. It's paradise on earth. <laughs> That's what they tell you anyway. Because they're selling an image. They're selling it through movies, radio, and television. In the hit show Badge of Honor, the LA cops walk on water as they keep the city clean of crooks. Yep, you'd think this place was the Garden of Eden. But there's trouble in paradise. And his name is Meyer Harris Cohen, Mickey C to his fans, local LA color to the nth degree, and his number one bodyguard, Johnny Stompanato. Mickey C's the head of organized crime in these parts. He runs dope, rackets, and prostitution. He kills a dozen people a year. And the dapper little gent does it in style. And every time his picture's plastered on the front page, it's a black eye for the image of Los Angeles. Because how can organized crime exist in the city with the best police force in the world? Something has to be done, but nothing too original, because hey, this is Hollywood. What worked for Al Capone would work for the mixture. Mr. Cohen, you're under arrest. Non-payment of federal income tax. But all is not well. Sending Mickey up has created a vacuum. And it's only a matter of time before someone with balls of brass tries to fill it. Remember, dear readers, you heard it here first. Off the record, on the QT, and very hush, hush. Yes, hello, 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 and welcome to Best of the Best Podcast with myself, Connor Keys, alongside me, as always, a man with balls of brass. Balls of brass. Mr. Ronan Emmett Mullen. That killed a very good two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is the introduction to uh, this week's topic, which is LA Confidential, and the introduction, uh, opening credits there with narration from Mr. Danny D. Danny DeVito, who is pretty much the only major star in this film at the time yeah yeah, yeah it was yeah and uh he plays uh a little uh snoop a little uh journalist mm. a sleazy magazine uh sort of paparazzi i suppose before they were paparazzi it's it's sort of he's said hudgens but it's based on that actual magazine he's writing for is based on a magazine called confidential uh-huh. which was a gossip fucking rag from the 50s 40s late 40s and it's thankfully, the basis, you know. Thankfully, those things died out. Yeah, we don't have any of them anymore. Yeah. Oh, God, wait. <laughs> the um, the good part about that is when they tried when they were selling the film, um, Curtis Hanson was having a real hard time trying to convince the studio to give him the money for it, but he put together like a, just like a, an open compendium book 
that had all these old pictures of Los Angeles that he had from his own personal collection because he's a native and he's really into old uh-huh. noir Hollywood and and he had the old pictures from Confidential, the ones that had like Robert Mitchum on the front cover in handcuffs when he yeah. was busted for smoking weed, <laughs> which is the basis for the bust in this in film. This, yeah, yeah. So he used that sort of style of that magazine to sell the film. Yeah. So LA Confidential, uh, based on the book by uh, James Elroy, James Elroy, and um, starring uh, well a stellar cast now, but at the time so yeah. relatively unknown. Yeah, the two big names were uh, Kim Basinger, Bas- Basinger, 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 um, and Danny DeVito. Yeah. But now we also have uh, Russell Crowe, Kevin Spacey, and Guy Pearce. Mm-hmm. Your man from Neighbours. The boy. Well, that that was the major problem. They didn't want to get big stars because they didn't want anyone to pick a favorite yeah between ed Exley and bud white so what they did was they got two unknowns two americans mm-hmm. but i mean russell crowe had already been in quite two, a few films ah, just, he was he was he was born in new zealand but mm. raised in australia and guy pierce was born in england and raised in australia so to a lot of people, everybody sort of knew he was an indie darling, sort of, Russell Crowe. He'd been in Romper Stomper, and mm. remember The Quick and the Dead, that Sam Raimi. Right, yeah. It was fucking shite, that mm, film. It was Stone. But, uh, was, but then Guy Pearce yeah, was, was very, in, very well known for Neighbours. Like. Yeah, but he had done, did he Did he do Priscilla? Priscilla had already been in, yeah. but Curtis Hansen demanded he not see Priscilla because he didn't want to have a view of him that yes. wasn't. But there's the audition tapes for both of them are on YouTube, and they were in the documentary with the DVD, and... It's clear that these are the two. Yeah, these are the two good. favorites. But again, they wanted them to be sort of everyman. It's very clear where their moral standpoint is from early on in the film. Mm. But they wanted nobody to pick a side yet. You know, because if you hadn't read the book, you didn't know what these characters' well, flaws were. Yeah, and that that, that plays to one of, that's one of the biggest strengths of the film is that you're not really sure who's the hero, anti-hero, who's the villain. Yeah. Um, and then also uh, the fact that it's purposely done like that because there's twists and turns mm-hmm. um but one of the 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 you mentioned that they're noir that you know that's the genre it's in technically neo-noir yeah as well it was sort of labeled as so this is 1997 but mm-hmm. playing 1950s playing 1950s basically the the book la confidential is part of a la quartet of books that elroy wrote in the late 80s early 90s this is the third book of the four being Black Dahlia, mm-hmm. Big Nowhere, Ella Confidential, this, and White Jazz, all celebrated modern noir books in, mm-hmm. their, in their own right. But they all have a thread through them. Characters overlap. It's the main reason why there hasn't been an adaptation of White Jazz or The Big Nowhere yet, because Ella Confidential sort of messes with the timeline. Basically, mm. this is an adaptation of Ella Confidential. It's not a direct. Okay, it's not. The, not There's like 20 plot threads in the book. Right, the okay. book's 490 pages long. Oh, it's right, 100 okay. pages more than any of the other three books. Right, right. It's huge. So they had to condense it down to three plot threads. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the book is omitted. A lot has changed. You know, the girl that they find uh, who's being sexually abused in, in mm-hmm. the apartment. In the book, she's a major. And in fact, she's the center of the... Sex triangle between Bud White and Ed Axley. It's not Kim Basinger's okay, character. Okay. So and Dudley Smith doesn't die. He, yeah. He, okay. So that's why White Jazz sort of hasn't followed on because Ellie Confidential did it so well. 
that people will well, assume that's you're gonna yeah how are you gonna compete against that yeah. too and it needs have, to be really really good it would need to be literally what they would sort of call a reboot you need to start from I, scratch and forget about LA Confidential to get the other books but which done. is going to be really difficult to do considering yeah. even Elroy himself says when he goes back and revisits the books which mm-hmm. he does regularly he finds it hard now not to see the actors in this film as the characters faces yes. yeah and he's the writer Right, exactly, yeah. You know, when he had this whole world of thousands of different threads in his head well before the film was even conceived, so... Yeah, and it does happen all the time. You read a book, and in your head you visualise what this character would look like, and then a studio puts out something, and you're going, what? It's not like a... Well, to him, he said, I understood in 40 minutes that it's a work of art on its own level. It was amazing to see the physical incarnation of the characters. Mm -hmm. So he says openly... LA Confidential is a great film based on my book, but it's not a direct adaptation yeah. of my book. He um, also has said <laughs> recently, he's a wild flipping sort of boy. Like, right. He said in 2019, he was at a festival, they were supporting a, a new book of his, and he said, it's about as deep as a tortilla. <laughs> Meaning they didn't really dig deep enough into my book to get the... But they couldn't. No, there's too much, yeah. The basis of that as well is that... Especially if you're saying there's 20 sort of blood threads, and you know, you're not going to keep the audience no, in one it's, film. It's no, it's like, even like, they mention in this film Buzz Meeks very briefly. Um, we, we see him at the start. Yeah. They mention that he's part of, he was a cop, he now works for Mickey Cohn, blah, 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 blah. And then his body is found. But that's pretty much it. Yeah, but it was very, it was he's very... the major character in oh, Big right. Nowhere. Okay. And he's killed off pretty early in LA Confidential the book, but he's mentioned all the time. Yeah. So stuff like that. I think I was more annoyed that they closed off both sides of LA Confidential so that you couldn't make the so big nowhere and you couldn't make white jazz. So he couldn't make any more money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is also a quote of his. He was, uh, when they, when they got the, the book, he said, uh, the motherfucker was incomprehensible uncontainable and unequivocally bereft of sympathetic characters. It was unsavory, unapologetically dark, untamable, and altogether untranslatable to the screen. And when he was told that Warner Brothers had purchased the rights to the film, he laughed and waited for the check anyways, saying, <laughs> Movieland self-delusion was a major theme of the novel. It was only fitting that I should profit from this exercise. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. So he's one of them boys that's like, I don't want it, but I'll take it. Yeah. And, and so... The- the good thing about this, and, and you've hit that sort of topic there, is that it was, well, first of all, we should sort of, anybody listening, because I know we have some listeners who maybe aren't big, big movie buffs or whatever, but noir mm-hmm. obviously is a, well, noir is black and French, um, yeah. but it would, noir is a very dark sort of yes. um, slow burning, yes. usually. and Full with damsels in distress. Yes, and, and femme fatales. And, and alcoholic yeah. detectives and yeah. guys down on their luck and... It's seeped in shadow, they say. it's Because most of the most famous film noirs ever filmed were in black and white. Yes. That's it was very, very easy for it to be seen as just white and shadow. Yeah. That's, that's all. Like nighttime in noir films is jet black. Yeah. And it's very difficult to... Stuff like Postman or Ring It Twice, The Big Sleep, Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard. Well, mine... I, this, this was probably my first film noir. Okay. Uh, you know, I uh, was say 97, so it was about 16, 17. Mm-hmm. So I hadn't really got into that. So after that, then I did go back and watch a few. Um, the Maltese Falcon would probably yeah. be my favorite Fal- one. Fucking brilliant film. Um, and in this, I always know, every time I watch LA Confidential since that, I all I can see is Russell Crowe is fucking bogey. Yes. He's Humphrey Bogart. Yes. yes. He's just that 
solid. But they nailed it. Yeah, absolutely. Whoever's the casting yeah. director in this film, they absolutely nailed it yeah. because it no no matter what you you sell this as modern neo noirs as they're called. Yeah, is that what like, to do now? Is, is, is neo neo noir new noir? Uh, yeah. So, so mm-hmm. like Blade Runner twenty forty nine is a neo noir future noir right, film. Okay, yeah. But it's in the future, yeah. so it's very sci fi and it's when you expect color. Yeah. This film could have been shot in black and white, and you would have been fine with it. Yes, but, but there's something about it's not just the let you know obviously the set. Of it's course, the tone of, course. of the film. Is well, very this is dark, the difference. Dante Spinotti, the, the cinematographer who did Heat and did uh-huh. Manhunter and Last of the Mohicans, he wanted this to be the feel of the time, but not look like a noir film. Yes, which is what he achieved. And this is what is the sort of weird thing about LA Confidential. It's it is old and new. Yeah. But, yeah, but it's, it's, it's hard to get the, to explain that in detail. But it, as you say, it looks new but feels old, mm-hmm. and that's uh, that's a rarity these days in films. It's, it's a hard thing to capture. They usually leave um, in most uh, film noirs. They have the city as a character. Mm-hmm. Lots of shots of buildings and the sides of these huge, huge like off ramps and the bridges and the aqueducts in Los Angeles. You know, all these are part of the story. Mm-hmm. But LA Confidential. The city is barely there. It's yeah, there, it's not, but you don't no, pick up on really major... I think it feeds into... I mean, it, 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 obviously, there's still very current themes, even though it's set in 1950s. This mm-hmm. whole idea of um, the sleazy tabloid journalists are sort of in cahoots with the police, and yeah. they'll turn up at the same at the arrest of a celebrity, just, you know, happen to be there. That's oh, the same course. thing. Yeah. <laughs> not so much has changed today. Um, usually, somebody said, if you're, if you're a celebrity and you're going to get arrested, you, you don't ring your, the... You don't ring. The only first phone call you make is to your agent. <laughs> yeah, to make sure that you yeah. can get a bit of <laughs> bit of headlines out of it. So this was sort of that sort of Sid Hudgens thing where he was the sleazy tabloid, and so then we have Kevin Spacey's. Are we going to talk about Kevin Spacey? Yeah, I think we're allowed to. Uh, Kevin Spacey's character Jack Vincent, who he's kind of like a sleazy, power hungry. Actually, it's just kind of like Kevin Spacey. Yeah, uh, <laughs> this is where this is where fact and fiction sort of start to overlap on this yeah. one because. To, to me, Jack Vincennes is the central character in this film. Yeah, I would say the same, yeah. Because he sort of typifies the bit of Hollywood that you like dipping your toe in. Mm-hmm. But then the the moral sort of Geiger counter of himself shifts to the other side and he has to start being, which he is clearly a good detective. Yeah. But he stopped doing that for a while. And even when he walks into the police station at the start and they're going, oh, Hollywood Jack, and he's mm-hmm. like, hey, everybody. <laughs> Curtis Hansen said that he told him when he met him, just be Dean Martin. And Kevin Spacey's like, I don't understand. Because at that point, Dean Martin was just known as Alcoholic Dean. Yeah. With a fucking the whiskey glass in the hand. Give it the, hey, everybody. Dino but on the vino. Not fucking Dean Martin from the 50s. Yeah. Where he was just the coolest bastard oh, that ever walked swagger, swagger and just all over the place. So he says he was at that Formosa restaurant, which is going to play a part in this story later. They were at that restaurant and he was saying to him, look, Dean Martin. You just have to be like Dean Martin. And Kevin Spacey was looking above Curtis Hansen's head and went, Curtis turn around and there was a sign picture of Dean Martin <laughs> right above his head and he goes I didn't do that delivery and he was like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. but he does play it that way yeah absolutely up yeah. until the point where he has to be a proper actual detective and then you see what this guy's worth is yeah and I think he's the, re- the real crux of the film like. and, and, it's, and it's the biggest transformation mm-hmm. they're all sort of transforming in a way that's the thing about these characters they're all I mean if you think of Guy Pierce's character he's the sort of straight laced do yeah 
Um, Everything that Dudley Smith asked him, would he be willing to do at the start? And he says, I'm not going to do that. I'm a, he, I'm a good... Yeah. He ends up doing. Yeah, and then you've got Bud, uh, Russell Crowe, who's just pure fucking rage. But then again... He's just bottle rage. He he's turns still a good detective. Then, yeah, like, um, but again, so that's that partnership that comes up with Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce. So you've got Bud and uh, actually, and they kind of have a... It's the brain versus the brawn mm-hmm. kind of approach, isn't it? To sort of uh, how they work together and it. So it's almost like a buddy movie as well, like a partnership thing. Yeah, that they works don't want to, They don't want to work together at the start, but they work through, you know, lethal weapon jobs. Like they sort of, they, they get through it and they, they figure it out and then they become good partnerships and are good friends. And um, But you still find this weird thing about Bud, Russell Crowe character. I mean, and I think that goes back to what you said to start about you didn't know who the actors were really, so you weren't picking a side because there's times you're going, mm, I don't like you. I like when Dudley Smith has him beating up every um, outside of LA gangster or drug runner in this fucking victory yeah. motel, and you're going, he can just turn around and say no to this. Yeah. He doesn't have to be just the brute force all the time. So there is that sort of feeling of, mm, don't know about you yet, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, which is great the whole way through. You don't know about anybody. You don't no, know who to trust. No. Uh, and that, I mean, that's led in nicely by the intro, who's just a case of everything's hush-hush and, uh, on the QT. Yep, come to Los Angeles. What's the quote? Come for vacation and leave on probation. Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, yeah. that's from an old noir film called DOA. And James Elroy says he wants it written on his tombstone. <laughs> he's like, uh, mighty. He's so mighty. But here we have to talk about Elroy for a minute. Um, this, is the first, this is fucking incredible. This is the first. Do you know anything about Elroy's history? No. He, um, he's quite a, quite a dark figure. Uh, he basically. He he was born and raised in Los Angeles. Uh-huh. Um, Arrow was born in Los Angeles, California. His mother. This is just the first paragraph of his life and career. <laughs> his mother, Genevieve Odelia, was a nurse, and his father, Armand, was an accountant and a one-time business manager for Rita Hayworth. After his parents' divorce, Elroy located to El Monte with his mother. When Elroy was 10 years old, his mother was raped and murdered in 1958 in front of their apartment. Jesus. Elroy later described his mother as sharp-tongued and bad-tempered, unable to keep a steady job, an alcoholic, and sexually promiscuous. His first reaction upon hearing of her death was relief. He could now live with his father. The police never found the perpetrator, and the case remains unsolved. The murder, along with reading The Badge by Jack Webb, which is a book of sensational police cases, Mm -hmm. which was a birthday gift from his father, was an important event in Elroy's youth. Now, the reason that was important was because it contained the story of the Black Dahlia. Right, okay. Which was the story of Elizabeth Short, who was found off of an apartment block, Mm -hmm. cut in half, and severely disfigured. And they've never found the person who did it. Never. Very famous murder. It's a very, very famous murder. So even gets even some bands name themselves. Even after. some bands, <laughs> you know, the Black Dahlia Troop and the Black Dahlia Threesome. <laughs> Back down murder. And I, did, I, did, more. I did receive a message going, "The Black Dahlia is too much." Seven twenty. <laughs> I got one too. I got one too. But we did warn them. We did warn them. So uh, th- this murder started to form the basis of how he wrote novels. Mm-hmm. He would basically take a real life event. And put fictitious stories around it, but still be true to the the original story of yeah. the, the actual factual event that happened. Right. So the Black Dahlia became his first major novel. He had books out before, and he had a cult following. They're very good, but the LA Quartet of books turned out to be people class them as a masterpiece, as one solid unit. Yeah, Each modern individual American book, literature. Yeah, yeah it would always be classed very high. Yeah. If you go on the end of American tabloid and 
Colt 6000, just just unbelievable mm-hmm. books. Like, so he knows how to do it, but the guy doesn't even write with a computer. He's no TVs. He's no <laughs> modern anything. He writes everything on legal pads, thousands of pages on legal pads. And that's why he has to go back and reread it all again. Because he can't reference <laughs> names or pages. He can't or, read his writing. He can't read his own fucking writing. <laughs> but he talks about LA Confidential. Um, and there's a great story at the start of a documentary about him called Feast of Death. And this is him speaking about LA Confidential. LA Confidential, the movie, is the best thing that happened to me in my career that I had absolutely nothing to do with. It was a fluke and a wonderful one. And it is never going to happen again, a movie of that quality. Here's my final comment on L.A. Confidential, the movie. I go to a video store in Prairie Village, Kansas. The youngsters who work there know me as the guy who wrote L.A. Confidential. They tell all the little old ladies who come in there to get their G-rated family flick. They come up to me. They say, oh, you wrote L.A. Confidential. What a wonderful movie. Kim Basinger was so beautiful. Is she a nice person? Yeah, she's all right. It was a wonderful movie. Oh, what a wonderful movie. Is Kevin Spacey really gay? Oh, what a wonderful, (laughs) wonderful movie. I saw it four times. You don't see storytelling like that on the screen anymore. I smile. I say, yes, it's a wonderful movie and a salutary adaptation of my wonderful novel. But listen, Granny, you'll love the movie. Did you go out and buy the book? And Granny invariably says, well, no, I didn't. And I say to Granny, then what the fuck good are you to me? (laughs) (laughs) That's fucking brilliant. The the demon dog of American literature, they call him. He's incredible, like. Mighty. He's really incredible. <laughs> he deliberately chops and changes between his political beliefs. He mm-hmm. chops and changes between his opinions of things because he doesn't want anybody to pin him down to anything. Yeah. Oh, I like his style, yeah. That's he's one of them boys. He he openly spoke, spoke openly, sorry, about uh, the Rodney King beatings being just biased media. <laughs> and then on the other side was talking about how much he admired Obama and his election. And <laughs> he, pin, he you can't pin him to fucking anything. No. He's the sneakiest, dirtiest dog in the world. Sneaky. Uh, well, you'd have to be to be writing such twisted fucking yeah. uh, and and twists and turns that come along in this uh, in this show in a way as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got uh, we've we've covered the sort of main characters, but there's a there's a real proper like hefty supporting cast. There's um, James there's, Cromwell is yeah. There's like forty five locations in this, and there's eighty speaking parts. Yeah. It's a big big mm-hmm. film, like. David Strathairn as well. David Strathairn, James Cromwell, like you said, who was already riding high on the success of Babe. That's right, Babe got a global success. People uh, were freaking about Babe. Yeah, he was probably one of the bigger stars on there right now. That, that, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Like, I mean, they, they've said, the studio have said, Brian Helgeland and Curtis Hansen were writing the book with the screenplay at the same time, hmm. unbeknownst to the other. And when Brian Helgeland went to the studio and said, I want to write the screenplay, I know you've optioned the book, uh-huh. they were like, you're, you're late by two days. He was like, what do you mean? He goes, Curtis Hansen came to us two days ago and said he wants to write the screenplay for LA Confidence. He was like, for fuck's sake. So the two boys met up mm-hmm. and he goes, listen, this is where I wanted to go with And it turns out they were both thinking the same thing. Right, right. So that's where the co-writing came into play. Oh. And it wasn't until they wrote the seventh draft that they took it to Elroy and he went, perfect, run with it. Go because with it. Yeah. 
you're I'm still gonna get a check, but you haven't fucked with my book like enough for me. Yeah, to he's not. happy enough to yeah, he's happy enough to take a like take it, the money and run. Yeah, if you jumped into I remember back in the day, remember when Jurassic Park came out hmm. and everybody was like, It's good, but it's not the book. And you're like, What the fuck could be in the book? And mm-hmm. the book's just the most ferocious thing you've ever read about dinosaurs. Like Yeah. It's oh, horrifying. It's scary, like, like yeah, proper. So fun. it's the same sort of thing. Whereas the Michael Crichtons of the world were going Make me money whatever way you want, but my <laughs> yeah. book's still faithful to whatever I wrote. Yeah. You know, they didn't pick out all the major, you know. Yeah, you're making a movie and you're you're loosely based on an yeah. idea. I had but you know for like, a yeah. fact if that rumor starts going around, you gotta read the book. Have you seen the film? But you gotta read the book. Then your book's gonna sell like a fucking motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah. So you wouldn't care. I would have always had the same opinion on misery. As well. There you go. Yeah, uh, the book was just so brutal, and then when you see the film, which is brutal, it's still brutal. <laughs> you have to tell people to go and read the book. Uh, so yeah, the, I mean, the, the adaptation on it, you, you've got this sort of, um, it, it's quite dialogue heavy. There's mm. there's obviously a bit of a like a shootout, you know, the usual sort of climax or whatever. But it's, it is quite a, a punchy dialogue mm-hmm. too, because again, that's that noir style. Everything's yeah. mysterious and everything, mm-hmm. especially Bud Russell Crowe. He's kind of like um, driver, you know. He just yeah. barely speaks, yeah. but he doesn't have to. No, um, the you've got a guy Pierce, like we talked about again. We were really a bit facetious about it, but he wasn't neighbors, so he wasn't really seen as wasn't much of a a big thing at that time. Now, obviously, again, independent films, neighbors, yeah. But in America, nobody had a fucking body who he mm-hmm. was like. And after this, obviously, it became, you know, memento and, and, mm-hmm. and, and moving on to bigger, better things. But um, we have a scene here with the uh, sort of like interrogation scene. It's one of the most famous scenes in the film, but it's in a film filled with really, really amazing sort of set pieces and setups. But it's it's one of the best scenes because it's if you if you look away for a minute in this film, you've lost it. It's gone. Yeah. Because they're talking about characters that you only seen briefly. And unless you've got the name in your head. You're going back to it. Unfortunately, in some scenes, they go back to like a, remember this happened? Yeah. Sort of shot when it shows Susan's body That's and then right, it goes back yeah. to her sitting in the car with the nose thing on. But I think, again, they sort of realized their audience needed, you know, is that You had to like, play it down a wee bit. You have but to keep them on. Because on, it is a multi, like you can rewatch this numerous times. Oh, never get bored. still find something. Yeah. No, never get um, bored. But that, that's not to suggest that it's complicated. No, no, it's no. It's by no means complicated. No, 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 no. There's so many wee little sort of nuanced you, things. If like, you keep on point, it'll, it'll fucking, it'll definitely reward you. Like. Yeah. Uh, well, this is the this is Guy Pierce um, carrying out an interrogation scene lead into it. So it's uh, these are the three guys. There's a shooting in a in a cafe. The night oil cafe. The night oil cafe, and a police officer has been gone down along with numerous other people, and their bodies dumped in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. It's quite grisly. So people are like, "Why did this happen this way? It's not a normal robbery." Yeah, so there's something a, else to a it. Kind of a passion, or So, um, the basically Stensland, who is the partner of Russell Crowe's character, uh-huh. uh, is the guy, the guy who gets cut, who gets killed. So they've finally found these three kids have been pinned down for having it because their car and the guns, etc., have linked it to them, uh-huh. and they've been brought in. Now, what they're originally being interrogated for, which is the shooting at the night owl, yes, turns around into they're they think they're getting arrested for something else. Yes. So this is where we're at. I just wanted to lose my cherry. She don't die, so I don't die. She don't die, so I don't die. Lewis, who's the girl? What's her name? Who are you talking about? Was she at the night out? Lewis, listen to me. Was she at the night out? She don't die. This newspaper 
shit ain't shit. Where's the girl Fontaine's talking about? Did you kill her? You wanted Lewis to lose his cherry, but that wasn't enough. So things got out of hand and you made her bleed. She bled on your clothes, so you burned the clothes. I told you that! Now listen to me. If that girl is still alive, she's the only chance you've got. I think she's alive. You think? Then where is she now? To leave her someplace? To sell her out? <laughs> Tell me where she is. Move! <laughs> what? One and six. Where's the girl? White, I have this under control. Put the weapon Where down. Is the girl? Well, gone the mouth fairly works. <laughs> what? Sylvester Fitch, 109 Avalon, Brown Corner House, upstairs. So we're again painting another picture of Bud when there's a woman involved. Gets so he it amps up yeah. that noise is him breaking a chair with his fucking hand like he breaks a lot of furniture in this <laughs> he does break a lot of furniture um he does uh, sort of a Russian roulette in the mouth there mm-hmm. um clicking the gun um just to get so again it's that sort of the dichotomy between actually wanting to be by the book mm-hmm. and do this in the psychological way that was him moving in between one room to the other sort of playing each each yep. suspect against each other and playing and with audio in each room so yeah. people think the other person's tightening on them when they're actually just which is a great set piece we didn't it do just really, really audio good. podcast but <laughs> but it's uh it, you sort of have to see it to, to get the full value of it but then when you see then bud white and his approach mm-hmm. and how the two clash his approach got the job done yeah so it's a it's a the fire me- so many mixed messages throughout this film mm-hmm. it's, it's brilliant and uh, like we said everybody makes that sort of journey mm-hmm. and everybody has their own sort of arc that they have yeah. um some are some are improving and some are getting worse mm-hmm. <laughs> um so Kim Bissinger I mean her sort of her role in this um she plays a a prostitute yeah a high end uh, prostitute that's um, dealing with VIP um punters. Uh, it, it, it's another but it's a weird it's a, that's the, a real story the twist on it is yeah that they're all sort of modelled against um, famous movie stars yeah they all get uh, as they say cut to look like movie stars so they yeah. get plastic surgery to look like the person they're meant to look like dyeing their hair whatever needs to be done yeah but that was a real thing there was really a, a Hollywood madam in the 50s who had a specific stable as they unfortunately mm-hmm. called of women who were only hired because they looked like movie stars and they were all prostitutes some of them were quite down on their luck quite uneducated and and they had to be like retrained to yeah. act like this uh, actress or model or whoever and it's fucking insane that that was yeah, real purely taking advantage of and that you know people being forced to try and look like somebody else mm-hmm. or to try and thankfully that's gone too nobody really feels like that's a look like anybody else there's yeah. no pressure on on no 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 we don't there's no body stereotypes no no um but <laughs> so we but i mean there can't be there could be no better an actress to sort of portray the role of lynn bracken than kim bester because she yeah. was the only one at that time she was aging slightly yeah she was but she was still Gorgeously, yeah. So but still, she looks like a nineteen fifties Hollywood movie star. She does. She's anyway. Like she, yes, I was saying she normally looks like that in the sense yeah. that she's almost that sort of silver screen harlot, as mm-hmm. it used to be called. Mm-hmm. Um, I throw. But <laughs> but the, the femme fatale mm-hmm. is the official one. She's not really the evil one in this. No, not at all. Um, but the, the whole always sort of dressed in white sort of mm-hmm. gives her as this shining sort of angel in the middle of mm-hmm. all the chaos. But she's a wee. She's a wee. But. 
She's a wee bit feisty now. She causes a wee bit of a love triangle between Axley and Bud. And, mm-hmm. you know, I wouldn't... Well, you know, I wouldn't want to get in the wrong side of Bud like, when it comes to a woman, you know? No. And actually, I wouldn't want to be a woman to get in the wrong side of Bud. No. <laughs> Make a nerve slap on the jaw. There's a bit of domestic violence in it. When that's where I was talking about earlier on, where you get to a point and you're going, mm, Bud, I don't know if I like you, sir. I know it's 1950s and all the rest, but it was a hard yeah. time to come around to his side. Like, yeah. yeah, we're going to play the bit from an earlier scene when they meet up. It's actually the first scene they meet up. But later on, they obviously become amorous because Bud's falling head over heels and over like. Mm. And the first time they become... Amorous. Mm-hmm. I love Amorous. In the uh, post-coital uh, <laughs> exchange, they he decides to <laughs> tell a story about his ma yes. getting beat to death with a tire iron <laughs> while he was handcuffed to a radiator. There ain't no better pillow talk. After the first time? <laughs> like, hey, Bud just plays it as it is. And then she plays it off, but... So this is him coming Very coolly in that scene, though, just before we can move yeah. on. She had the opportunity then to start telling her story. Like, why did she become... Why did it come yeah. to this? And she didn't. No. So that's where she differs from the normal... Uh, the female roles that would normally be in these films. She, she breaks away from the stereotype and just accepts what he is and why he is who he is. Yeah. So that's why... It's a very male-oriented film. It is. I mean, when, but you when nearly he go as far her, as to say she's probably one of the very few females in it. Yeah. Overall. When he hits her um, in a scene where we find out that Ed Axley has also been footering with her. Mm-hmm. And he sees pictures of it. Mm-hmm. She sort of accepts it like, well, I knew this was coming. Yeah. From him. Again, it was a very good portrayal of, uh, yeah. of the time. Yeah. I mean, the woman knew the position was going to happen, what was going to happen, mm-hmm. what she was in for and stuff. It's just, again, back to that thing of, of the sort of it being done in 1997. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing that the change then, yes, you're portraying that this was the norm in the 1950s, but then when you get to 1997, 98, yeah. people are finding it hard to get on his side because of it. So it's no, a, it's a I, great I know change. Where you're like, from. Yeah. Um, it's a positive change. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, Obviously, it is. It is. Yeah. It is. But if you still have to portray the time as it was. Yeah, and you have to show uh, the, the nuts and bolts of it, and that's mm-hmm. was the case. And, and I don't think. I mean, you always seen in the in the noir films, like in the fifties, especially the sort of backhanded slap yeah. to the woman, and she's all get away from me, Alex. <laughs> Don't touch my cigarette. Um, oh, that's, always, that's always been about. <laughs> yeah, it's always, but and it's sort of like if 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 it was the other way around, it was Ed Axley who was coming to the door. He'd just stand there shaking his finger at her and crying and walking away. I thought I was going to say something else. No, 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 oh, just shaking his finger. No, shaking his finger. So then she, for her to know the story about. Bud White's past. Yeah. She knows that this is just a trigger. It's a button that she's pushed and yeah, she knows is, what's and, coming. Like. On, on, on so many levels, she's psychologically reading yeah. all of them, both of them, you mm-hmm. know, in that sense, um, as well as physically. Mm-hmm. Destroying them. Oh, boy. <laughs> this is, uh, this is Lynn. I was going to say Lynn. Um, this is uh, her Kim. character, Kim. Playing <laughs> no, this is Lynn, Lynn the character, Lynn, Kim the actress. Lynn Bracken was the Lynn Bracken. Bracken was the name. And this is when she uh, meets up with Bud, and Bud has just already been a wee bit tested at the door uh, because the councilman yeah. was in for um, a massage, shall we say? Which you don't know, and it's a great line too, like because <laughs> you're like, "I'll tell your wife that you're here," blah blah blah. And then yeah. when he leaves, he goes, "Councilman." <laughs> yeah. So he does mention it. That's right. You don't know until no, the, very end know. the last word he says. Um, so this is them meeting in in her apartment. I was friendly with Sue Lefferts, but we weren't friends. 
You know what I mean? You sorry she's dead? Of course I am. What kind of question is that? Do you know why Pierce is humoring you? If you use words like that, you might make me mad. But do you know? Yeah, I know. Patchett's running whores. Cut to look like movie stars. Judging by his address, probably something bigger on the side. He doesn't want any attention. That's right. Our motives are selfish. So we're cooperating. So cooperate, Miss Bracken. Why was Susan Leffert at the Night Owl? I don't know. I never heard of the Night Owl till today. How did she meet Patchett? Pierce meets people. Sue came on a bus with dreams of Hollywood, and this is how they turned out. Thanks to Pierce, we still get to act a little. Tell me about Pierce. He's waiting for you to mention money. You want some advice, Miss Bracken? It's Lynn. Miss Bracken, don't ever try to fucking bribe me or threaten me, or I'll have you and Patchett and shit up to your ears. I remember you from Christmas Eve. You have a thing for helping women, don't you, Officer White? Maybe I'm just fucking curious. You say fuck a lot. You fuck for money. There's blood on your shirt. Is that an integral part of your job? Yeah. Do you enjoy it? When they deserve it. Did they deserve it today? I'm not sure. But you did. It's like a. It's so. I could just keep going there. Yeah, it's like a back and forward where you know she's as fucking cute in the mind as oh, he is. Just fly. She just she's she's just trying to get a hold of him, and she in three minutes she has him like. No, and he's just a fucking knuckle dragger. Oh. He's just ready to bust something, and uh, yeah. So I mean, obviously, it leads to then he's yeah he's busting flaps. Not uh, only is he busting flaps, <laughs> he's freaking McDiggins sitting outside the house watching her. That's right, I guess Here, a wee bud. bit. I guess we have a stalker Wait, recently. After work, just sitting in the car, smoking pigs, <laughs> watching her. Bud. Uh, so, yes, we've got all this. And then in the middle of all this, you've got the intrigue as such, you mm-hmm. know, as, as all good neon wars, you've got the trying to figure out the, the Night Owl Cafe and the Yeah, the Night Owl doesn't make... The minute that th- these black kids don't seem to have an idea about the Night Owl, everything's starting to fall apart. Mm. But people are happy just to nail them to the cross. Um, Again, another massive theme in the film yes. too about how easy it is just for just the police for, department. Yep, to corruption just, is yeah. an, an easy enterprise in this this time. Well, most times. Yeah, most times, but the most definitely nineteen fifty when mm-hmm. you could pick um, young black kids up the street and that's it. Just done. To, so, you know, they're being. Uh, I mean, it's this. it's it's actually scary if you think any deeper than that and go, well, how many across all of America and all of the world back in the fifties yeah. were getting away with things well, because they could blame it on minorities. These stories didn't just pop up out of nowhere; like they're based yeah. on fact. That's so. You know, if you think about the time, Elroy spoke a lot about, you know, this is post-World War Two. Yeah. A lot of people have come back pissed off. You know, domestic violence went through the roof in certain parts of America where mm-hmm. men were coming home, full-blown alcoholics at this point. Yeah. Um, not getting the appreciation they deserve for fighting for their country, et cetera, et cetera. Went in a war and, you know, the economy's on its ass because everybody was away and the industrial complex was pumping money across the... So everything's on its hold. Mm-hmm. And... People are fucked off and people are joining the police department with these notions in their head and they're getting promoted and getting to be detectives, but essentially they're corrupt racists and they're just allowed to do whatever they want. That's Guy Pearce's character of actually then is the sort of the signifying of the change. Yes. The new type coming in. Yeah. Well, supposed to come in. The new type coming in that are more by the book. They're very um, much 
by the law and they want to enforce it and then they also genuinely want to protect people yeah because um, they do mention he comes from a good family and his father yeah. was a good detective you know all this sort of so it, it, he's come from good stock and it, that's kind of again shows the, the sort of yin and yang of the police department mm-hmm. of any police department I would guess that you've got good cops bad cops you know, I know they play that role but there are some within each um, police force that are going to be as you say maybe career police who are family police who have mm-hmm. just got over time they just get power yep and this is what this showed as well. So this leads then to the fact that it goes to as high up within the department as possible. We'll not mm-hmm. go through any details of the no, no, no intricate details of the twist. But you know, it, it, it takes you all the way up to uh, a climax then of uh, a good old fashioned shootout. There's a good healthy shootout at the end of this um, with uh, Bo- boys in the floors. Boys in the floors with a shotgun and a six revolver. That's it. Six shot. Yep. That's it. Old <laughs> That's school. It's mighty. Um, but again, it's uh, Curtis Hansen does a great job in all of it, in the sense he does of, uh, even the action bits as well, mm-hmm. um, as well as them sort of more intense dialogue scenes. Uh, the Spacey's sort of role has sort of mm-hmm. fades out, shall we say, <laughs> earlier on, yeah. um, and it's was left then ultimately to the team work of Axley and White, Budden and uh, Axley. So um, we, I mean. Some of the stuff that's carried on from this, I mean, you've got all the characters sort of, or sorry, all the actors took on a, a, obviously a massive um, space. I think, was this the same year or the year after? This year after. He won the Oscars. Yeah, he won that year after. So it's, and then you've got Kim Bessinger got a... She got an Oscar for this. Supporting actress Mm -hmm. uh, Oscar as well. It was nominated for nine and it won two because unfortunately it was the same year as Titanic. Exactly. Well, in fairness now, come on. Uh, <laughs> stand down sir do not fucking dare throw that ship shit at me fucking ship waste shit. of shit um, and so but I mean the, the, you've got Kevin Spacey Russell Crowe obviously going on to Gladiator then um, Superstardom Guy Pearce going on then to bigger films and all that so but it still sort of brings it I wouldn't really go far as that some of this here is some of their best acting oh yeah because they're not having that or maybe it's just, is it our eyes at the time? I remember watching this and I didn't know who Russell Crowe was and I didn't know, um, I knew who Kevin Spacey was, but I didn't know, you know, I didn't know Guy's Pierce apart from Neighbours. Mm-hmm. But to watch that with those eyes then and not knowing them stars and now, it's a different sort of movie now. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the best stuff Russell Crowe did was in this. Oh yeah, I agree with you. Like he's so, I mean, it's, it's so intense. It's mm-hmm. unbelievable. Spacey and, as well is incredible. DeVito's DeVito, but... DeVito's DeVito, but he, he adds that sort of, you need that... Uh, that sort of playful, yeah, that playful corniness like of the, I, of the I like the way he keeps digging for more, even yeah. though he's already got too much. He keeps digging for more. And the fact is, Devito because he's short, he's always looking up, yeah. especially, and always sort of that sort of almost like an evil sidekick. Mm-hmm. Um, but he plays it again, and then his narration, his voice is great over the top of it as well. So yeah, but he's fantastic. got no moral standpoint no, at all no. because he definitely would be if it was modern day, he'd be in the world. Yes, he <laughs> he, he. There's a scene where they set up uh, a young up and coming actor. To have sex with a district attorney, <laughs> and they know there's a potential that this kid could die, but also that this kid is not gay and he's about to get infiltrated. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I I'd watch that scene all the time because they're sort of like at a at an awards thing, and they're all just sort of smiling and happy. This boy's about to get bucked by an old district attorney, and I'm going, <laughs> "This is horrible. This is really horrible." <laughs> That's the thing. The sort of dark undertones of yeah, it all. Yeah, it's like, really. Um, but that again, that scene is also based on a true story. So, 
like, and a kid died. Right. And his body was never found. Oh, right, okay. And you're sort of going, Jesus, Ugh. this is fucking... Yeah. I know. They're, they're, they're skipping lightly over certain <laughs> things. Um, yeah, so, I mean, LA Confidential being sort of uh, coming into the... I was nearly going to say the golden period. I, I do believe 1999 is one of our better years mm-hmm. of cinema. Mm-hmm. But we were kind of very lucky in that 95 to 2000 with... Yeah, it was in five years, yeah, like it really absolutely. was. Um, Curtis Hansen, what did he do after this? Curtis Hansen did Eight Mile. Eight Mile was after this. Mm-hmm. Came back he did Eight Mile, movie. and he did. Um, you ever see Wonder Boys? Yes, Michael Douglas. It's a brilliant film. Great show. Yeah. Um, before this, he did The Hands That Rocks the Cradle. Yes, I remember that. I remember I The River always. Wild with Meryl Streep. Oh, I've never seen that actually. It's really Hand good. Hands That Rocks the Cradle used to always freak the shit out of me. It used to freak the shit out of me too. Really it used to always be on Sky, oh, that early uh, Sky. Like it used yeah, to always, always be. On. But he did a film called Bad Influence that had Rob Lowe in it. And right. it was about a guy that, inf- like, there's this young, up and coming, yuppie sort of boy, and there's a guy whispering in his ear, and he gets into big trouble. That sounds well familiar, actually. But it was the, that was the year that Rob Lowe got caught on the video having sex with the two girls, and it turned out one of them was 16. Ah. That's where the yes. Rob Lowe infamy came out. So uh-huh. that film sort of bombed because of that because controversy. Of that, right. But it's a really good film. Right. But yeah, it, it Mile and that was a strange. I didn't. Like, if you go, who do you think directed that film? I'm like, God. Like F. Gary Gray or something or one of the it hip is. lads and you're like no no it was 61 year old Curtis Hansen who did <laughs> yeah. the but it actually cradle. you know the fucking the, 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 the gritty, it's a great the, film the grittiness of 8 Miles is fucking yeah. amazing and you can see the LA Confidential the, the links in there even the dark tone of 8 Mile as well because mm-hmm. it has to look dark and it's so desolate and stuff so no uh, yeah so Curtis did he he didn't get he didn't get an Oscar for that he got nominated I think nominated. the film was nominated nominated um, so yeah, everybody has kind of went on to flourishing careers. Um, Kim Bessinger really never, never really was seen after Eight Mile. I don't think she needed to. Yeah, I think it's just the tail end of it. And money I think made. she's been in a few uh, films, bit parts and stuff. She's been in a few TV shows, if I recall as well. But there's there hasn't been much more. She was the go-to lady. Of, oh, yeah. of the eighties and nineties, like for oh yeah, for young lads looking for a Hollywood starlet. Of course, not that we could go and find her. I mean, just in general, to fantasize. Of course. Um, commitments being the big one about mm-hmm. <laughs> the saxophone player. Yeah. Um, so, I mean... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I was going, where the fuck's he going? Oh, yeah, the nipple. The nipple, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, we the good thing about this was then, I mean, whenever I first watched it, like I said, it took me back then to... to to look at other noir films. So mm-hmm. if you do, if you haven't seen this, and you shouldn't have been listening the whole way through this, but if you have, go back then and rewatch this, but then go back and find whatever 1950s sort of noir you oh, can. Oh, yeah, I do. And you'll realize there's the amount of wee sort of nods, like the the, the mm-hmm. music, especially if you listen to music in some of those scenes there where it's real, just like a, a long drone mm-hmm. of, a, 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 of, of strings just in the background building up this tension at all times. And... Like it, it's sometimes it's really Jerry Goldsmith. I forgot his name there. Sorry, I had to look it up. Jerry Goldsmith, the conductor. Conductor. So uh, he did the music, but he did it. He's done. He did Chinatown. He did. Yeah, I was going to say he did. So he did Chinatown. That was the first foray into noir since the fifties. Wouldn't that have been the first neo noir then? If that's uh, more, yeah, more technically, yeah, yeah. if you want to go that thing, yeah. So Chinatown. Um, again, another. Crack oh fuck! Don't even chat. Um. So I mean, to to go and and uh to take all that sort of tension. Sometimes in the fifties, it was done really bad. Mm-hmm. You know, the music was so, and the, the acting was, as you say, <laughs> do your impression again. Some of it's, there's one, that DOA film, there's a boy, a boy gets out of a car on the Sunset Strip, and uh-huh. there's like a Hollywood premiere going on outside, and he gets out of the car and goes, hey everybody, look over here! <laughs> and everybody in the fucking street looks over, and I'm like, how did he win it? 
in, in Hollywood, cars and trams going by and all the noise. And like, hey, everybody, look over here. <laughs> and everybody goes, what's he talking about? <laughs> that was a sort of, that's why I love this one, because neo-noir then has the noir genre, but modern acting. Yes. Because all the women talk the same back in the all <laughs> And you got to remember, the same way. a lot of the noir films couldn't go down as visceral a route as this like you would have oh, never have saw not, no. a scene like in the bathroom in the night owl you'd have no. never have you've never have seen you you'd know, have heard makes you'd, you'd have heard about corpse. the murder but you'd never would have seen yes it. exactly you would have seen no blood or you wouldn't have seen you know susan leffer's dead body on the slap you would have never seen any of that no. and that's what adds that tinge of darkness to this which makes it more than just a pop reference to film noir yeah. it's, it's but it also cheaper. then when you watch older films then and take that context with it it gives you more respect for them films yeah how did they build the tension without showing you them mm-hmm. things you know oh absolutely stuff. um so yes if you get the chance go and and re-watch or watch for the first time la confidential um do not buy there you know a film has got iconic status uh-huh. when there is a cannabis strain called la confidential is there really yes I have one really good story to tell before I, this is over. I'm not saying I have knowing about it. I'm just saying. No, no, no. I know. That's I, why I'm changing the subject because I don't want you to be associated with that type of thing. I've seen the name of it. Just and I thought, oh, that's you know, you're a big film whenever you get named straight enough. <laughs> <laughs> the the post this film. Now I'm going to talk about before the film and after the film. There's two strip stories. Post the film, there was a TV pilot made uh-huh. for a TV show version of this. Oh, in the early 2000s with Kiefer Sutherland as Jack Vincent. Oh no way! I gotta see that. It's on the Blu-ray. Right. But it's also, I believe there's a bad copy of it on YouTube, but it's there. It is awful. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, they couldn't have done any worse if they tried. <laughs> now, there's also been rumors that HBO, who own the rights, by the way, to the Big Nowhere and White Jazz. Oh, right. They don't know. own the Black Dahlia because uh-huh. uh, it was already made into a film. That's right. Poorly. Was that? Brian De Palma. Was, but how Scarlett all? Johansson. And I was going to say that the actor's name. Is it? Josh. Josh Hartnett? Yes. Oh. It is terrible. That wasn't you, me. That wasn't me getting excited. No, no, that no. That was me shuddering. If you, if you want to read something really funny, read James Elroy's review of the film The Black Dahlia. <laughs> no, that'll be good. It, is, it is eviscerating <laughs> by all means. It's killing grannies all over the place. So, um, on the, uh, well, sorry, there was actually a sequel to LA Confidential in the works. It was meant to be out next year. Right. Um, and they had Chadwick Boseman was attached uh-huh. to play a young cop. But oh. they've had to change the whole thing since Obviously, this passing. Yeah, yeah. So they, it may not happen now. Okay. So they're the things that... It's in the works still. The books are still there. And if somebody could do a TV show based on the actual LA Quartet... Yeah, the whole Quartet together would be... It, a, it would be a five-season fucking masterpiece. Yeah. It would be unbelievable. But it's huge. Like HBO. So HBO, we're... we're well, anyone at the minute? Because all the streaming services well, are fucking... Good, actually, yeah. They've all got the budgets, yeah. So... In this film, at the, the intro here, we heard in the voiceover Danny's video, he's talking about Mickey Cohen. Mm-hmm. Now, Mickey, Mickey Cohen is the infamous gangster mobster who ran Los Angeles r- crime. He ran all the rackets. He ran drugs. Mm-hmm. He ran everything. Mickey Cohen gets put in prison, and it's a major plot point of this film as well, and people started to rush to try to grab what piece they could of his empire. Mm-hmm. It mentions Johnny Stampanato. Johnny Stampanato was a gangster who was a bodyguard for Mickey Cohen. So Stompanato also was boyfriend partner to Lana Turner, oh. the actress. Mm-hmm. So Johnny Stampanato was known as being very jealous with whatever girlfriend he had. So mm-hmm. Lana Turner is a world famous mm-hmm. actress and she's filming all around the world. She's in London shooting a film with a young actor called Sean Connery. Pre-James Bond. That wouldn't make you jealous? No. no. So Stompanato 
start seeing all the pictures and the gossip mags, the confidential magazine of the time, oh, and I going, love. this boy's a bit of a looker. <laughs> Here, I'm not having any of this. So he flies to London in a jealous rage to confront Sean Connery, who he's never met, and he has no idea if he's even been in a scene with Lana Turner yet. Confronts him on the set. Connery grabs him by the hand, squeezes it back, nearly breaks his wrist, drops him to his knees, and knocks him out by busting him in the nose. <laughs> so stomping out of the big bodyguard mobster is fucking fuming. He gets blacklisted, or he gets fucking exiled from England. He has to go home, fly back to America. <laughs> because they, they couldn't be barred putting a fucking anything on him because they're like, it's just a waste of their time yeah, to put you through the court. Back, yeah. So they send him back. Because of this, Johnny Stampanato goes into such a rage that he, when Lana Turner returns back home, he beats her. He beats her so ferociously that Lana Turner's 13-year-old daughter shoots and kills Johnny Stampanato. Well, I don't. In their house. So... Then that, there's a movie. Then right, <laughs> the link is good. Then the the girl goes to court. Obviously, it's a huge murder trial. It's fucking uh-huh. massive. There's a movie star. There's a mobster involved. There's mm. a young girl shooting a person and murdering them. Fucking hell, it's huge. So it goes to trial and she gets off because it's self defense because mm-hmm. he was battering her mother. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they call it self defense. She gets away with it. <sighs> the girl's still alive. She wrote books about it. No, Sean Connery. <laughs> Sean Connery feels that his life is under threat because a mobster who's related to a mob yeah. has been murdered uh-huh. because of an action he did. <laughs> he goes into hiding for a number of months right, and doesn't return to Hollywood for a few years. Thus, 007. Uh-huh. James Elroy says that the reason his mother didn't get more media coverage because of her murder outside of their, their home uh-huh was because it was the same week Johnny Stampanato was killed. Well, I don't. Uh, oh, I swear yes. to ye God. That's a small world. Eh? Well, that's one of the stories that I'm pretty sure... I love those link- links I got. I, I know, it's so it's fucking good. Classic. I was reading about him going, why do I know that boy's name? And then it kept popping up, and it's that great scene in LA Confidential where Axley comes into the diner. Yes. Which is a game Formosa, where uh-huh. Curtis Hansen took Kevin Spacey, that diner, and says... You're just a whore cut up to make look like Lana Turner. And Jack Vincennes of Grinham goes, that is Lana Turner. <laughs> so that's Johnny Stampanato and Lana Turner in that booth. Holy Jesus. Mm. <laughs> well, there we have it on full circle. Um, LA Confidential, definitely one of our best of the best. And uh, go and take a look. I don't know. It's on Amazon Prime at the moment. I think so. Uh, yeah, I just checked that out. So go and I take had a look. The, I had the bl- Blu-ray out. Oh, it's spectacular stuff. Ah, well, look amazing on HD. So, yes, uh, we'll be back again. Uh, oh, I listened to Idols. Oh, yes, well. I really like them. Like it? I really like it. Like it. I, I knew, did. A, I, I watched an interview, and they said, uh, the lead singer said this line, and I went, I'm in. He goes, you know you can't trust royalty. They're just blue blood Nazi cunts. <laughs> <laughs> I went, fucking. There we what? go. On that note, thank you very much. Chat God bless. God bless. <laughs>